how do we broaden the space of discourse so all students can have a sense of competence, therefore having a positive impact on their identity? And so it helps us think about some of the practices that happen in the classroom. If you're only using hand raising as an acknowledgement for someone to contribute to the discourse in the mathematics classroom, why? Are there other ways that we can engage students? And so just raising awareness, having conversation, and then last thing is then how do we... Today we're speaking with Robert Q. Berry, a past NCTM president. He's a professor in the Curry School of Education at the University of Virginia and author of numerous books on articles on equity issues in mathematics education. Stick around to hear Robert discuss math moments he's had as a student and a teacher. We'll be diving into a book series he's been working on called Catalyzing Change, why we need to spark wonder and joy in our students, and how you can implement equitable teaching practices into your classroom. All right, let's do it. Cue up the music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from TapIntoTeamMinds.com. And I'm John Orr from MrOrr-IsAGeek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. John, are you ready to speak with the awesome Robert Q. Berry? Of course, Kyle. Of course. We are honored to uh, bring on Robert for this episode. Before we dive in and get to our talk with Robert, we want to thank you for listening to us wherever you are in the car, at the gym, in the kitchen, washing the dishes, or maybe on your prep time. If you've listened to us before and enjoyed the episode and got some value out of it, we'd love to hear about it. We read all of the reviews on the podcast, and right now we want to share one of those reviews. This one from SB5683. Whoa, what a name on Apple Podcasts. If I gave out podcast awards, this would be award winning. Not only a great start to your week, but truly a remarkable podcast that includes concepts, insights, application, and real business of productive struggle from the teacher's perspective. I listen to learn and grow and be challenged with team and presenters. It's easy to leave with at least one nugget and multiple aha moments. The absolute biggest thank you for making my Mondays start with epic conversations around math. Wow, that is fantastic. Nothing energizes us more to keep on recording episodes of this podcast and seeing those ratings and reviews come from all of you math moment makers out there. So have you taken 10 seconds to hit pause, scroll down in your podcast app and tap five stars? Okay, okay, you don't have to hit five stars if you don't think that's accurate for you, but please do hit a star rating to give us that quick feedback. And if you want to be a math moment maker hero, then take the extra two minutes to write us a short one to three sentence review. That would mean the world to us. Before we dive into this great discussion with Robert Q. Berry, let's take a moment to get everyone listening to stop and pause the episode if you have not already joined the waiting list to be notified of the 2020 Make Math Moments Virtual Summit happening November 7th and 8th of 2020. That's right, John. Last November, we ran our first 
annual Make Math Moments Virtual Summit and had over 25 sessions from math education change agents from around the world, including Joe Bowler, Robert Q. Berry, who we'll be talking with in just a moment, Margaret Smith, Dr. Nikki Newton, and so many more. All that, and we did it free this year. We hope to top last year's amazing lineup of speakers by bringing back as many of our presenters from last year, as well as adding some new awesomeness to the cast. So take a moment, get yourself registered, and you'll get details sent right to your email as they become available. Register now for that wait list at makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. All right, enough from us. Let's get on to this fantastic conversation with Robert. Hey there, Robert. Welcome to another episode of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are so excited to have you on the show today. How have you been doing, especially in this COVID-19 era in the time that we're recording this? I'm doing well. You know, my family's well. I would say that all three of my boys are at home. My wife and I, we were empty nesters. Now we're no longer empty nesters. <laughs> um, it's busy now. So it is busy now, but my boys are older, so it's going well. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, really excited to have you on the show today, as John mentioned. And actually, you were coming off of the end of your term as NCTM president. So kind of like a lot of different changes going on in the world of Robert, not only passing the torch at NCTM, but then also having this everyone staying around home, the family's home. So lots of changes there, I'm sure. And I'm sure we'll dive into that a little more. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? John and I know you very well. I'm sure many people who are listening also know of Robert Q. Berry. But for those who don't, can you tell us a bit about yourself and maybe start unpacking a bit of your math teaching story or journey? So I was one of those kids kind of growing up in school I'm the oldest of five children, but in school, I would say I probably was, the best way I can describe it is kind of like the forgotten kid. I didn't get in trouble. I didn't cause any trouble. You know, I made decent grades, but I was easily forgotten, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, nothing too bad happening, nothing too amazing happening. So they're like, you know what? We can focus our attention elsewhere. Robert's going to be all right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess that's how I would sum up my K-12 kind of experience in terms of that. But I come from a family of, I describe it as teachers and preachers. I have several uncles who are pastors of churches, have aunts and uncles who have been classroom teachers. And my pathway to education wasn't that I sought out to become a teacher. In fact, you know, as an undergraduate, I started off in civil engineering, but, you know, it was just kind of one of those things. As I got further into kind of the major, I kind of realized, like many undergrads, maybe this is not the thing for me. And I ended up going to a counselor and said, these are the courses I have. What can I do? I'm really not having any direction. <laughs> yeah. Help me out <laughs> what, here. Yeah. Yeah. What can I do? And so I ended up finishing a degree middle school mathematics and science. So I actually became a certified math and science teacher, physical science teacher. And so, yeah, that's how. I, but when I student taught, I absolutely loved it. I student taught fourth grade at a school in Newport News, Virginia, 
and absolutely fell in love with these fourth graders. Had a phenomenal experience. So I had two student teaching experience, one in the elementary grade, uh, fourth grade, and one was uh, at a middle school. Um, it was actually at the middle school that I attended. My student teaching experience was kind of solidified that this is the thing for me to do. Although I've had educators in my family who've had impact on my life and I had teachers who had impact on my my life. It was just one of those things. I uh, do teachers make a lot of money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Cause I was, I was just about to ask Robert, what do you think was it about that experience that solidified you into this? And I've shared this on the podcast before that I completely agree that the lifestyle of a teacher, the ability for the job to tell you in your brain that you can provide for your family is and was for me a decision making factor to help me decide to go into that field is I knew that if I did this, I could provide for my family for a long time, you know, so I was worried about that. But it can be and is a decision making factor about the money. But what do you think solidified it about this, the student teaching? For me, both of my cooperating teachers were great people. When I student taught at fourth grade, the teacher was excellent as well as the students. It was one of the first times I think I thought I was really good at something, <laughs> so to speak. I played sports when I was younger and things of that nature, and I thought I was good at that. But for me, this was you know, something I thought I was really good at the way that the students and I connected. And then at the time, my cooperating teacher kind of just reinforced that. I mean, really just offered me positive reinforcement. Like, you are really, really, really good. And you're not going to have trouble getting a job. I mean, she said all those kinds of things, but she really took care. At a middle school, when I student taught, the same thing happened again. My first experience with the elementary, my second experience with the middle school, again, same thing. I was reinforced telling me how good I was at. But what happened in my middle school experience, my cooperating teacher, probably about two weeks in, had a medical emergency, and I took over the class. And so I am here, you know, a student who had class myself. I felt confident that I could do it, and I did it, and it just kind of made it pretty solid for me. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. I'm picturing all this, and I know that teaching that first class can be quite powerful. 
I'm now the teacher in charge and, and I've got the class at my hands. I'm wondering what that looks like for an early Robert, not the Robert that we have right now, the Robert that's the uh, president of NCTM and written all these books. But what did the first couple years of teaching look like for you? Were they awesome? Were you like the teacher you are now or, or what did it look like? Yeah, I wish I could get a do-over <laughs> for the first couple of years. <laughs> right. I know many people say that, but, you know, my first year teaching, I taught in kind of a rural area of Virginia and I struggled a lot. But the thing I was in the middle school, but the thing that I love, I was part of a team that was pretty supportive. I would say my experiences throughout my career, I've been fortunate enough to have people who were really open, really supportive, and were great teammates and team members. So I struggled. I struggled particularly with organizational issues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I say that because You're not I still alone. Do. I still do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I love doing the work, but I didn't like grading. I didn't like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't like, you know, you know, I mean, I just, you know, timeliness and kind of a summative time feedback and things of that sort. So I struggled organizationally, but over time I got better with that in terms of managing my time. I also struggled somewhat with classroom management on some levels, but I think I got a quick candle on that pretty quickly, probably moving to my second year of teaching. So my first year teaching, I taught in central Virginia, and then I left that school district and went to a different school district closer to my hometown. And the reason why I'm t bringing this up is that the year I was hired, I was hired in a school where the principal purposely hired African-American men in that school. And at that time, given the contact, it was unusual to hire that number of black men for school. What that did for us collectively, we were all first or second year teachers and we bonded. To this day, we're all still close friends. And the kind of bond that we develop in terms of supporting one another and calling out one another and observing each other's classroom. We shared students, we moved students around. It was just that collective kind of professionalism, collectivism that we had that maintained itself over years and years of, of experiences. So yeah, I'm thankful for, I was able to be put into that situation where I was hired with a group of like-minded people who supported one another. And something that's jumped into my mind as you were sharing, because earlier on you were discussing how you had some really supportive here in Ontario, we call them our associates. And you referenced how they were really supportive and that likely impacted kind of your decision, almost like maybe ignited your awareness that, hey, like maybe I am going to be pretty good at this thing. And I think back to my experience, and I don't know if John, if you could relate as well, but I felt like I had really strong associate teachers as well. And they were very supportive and they gave me a lot of really positive feedback. But yet, Robert, and I know John and I have both said, so Robert said it and John and I have said that, man, we wish we could do some do-overs from those early years. So it makes me wonder about the associate teachers kind of looking and, and is it what they perceive to be effective instruction or could they see maybe further into the future that they're like, you're not there yet, but I don't want to tell you that because I don't want to get you down. But I can tell that over time, you're going to be able to figure this thing out. But to me, that's something that is really interesting because I'm sure 
that interaction, you know, and the feedback that they're giving you, and there's a lot of descriptive feedback in the moment. And then after you teach a lesson, that could really impact your own perception of whether this is going to be something you can do or not, and whether you're going to be able to get into this field, get a job, and then obviously start to hone in on your craft. I mean, for me, just to respond to that, for me, I think one of the things that supported that was I was willing to take risks sometimes that others weren't willing to take. And an example of that, you got to imagine, I'm talking early to mid-90s, when you say bringing technology, I mean, you got to imagine those old Apple IIe's and things. I I was willing to kind of not knowing what to do, but try to figure out, get the kids in the computer lab and just kind of play around with different things and software, calculators and manipulatives and tools. I mean, those things weren't pretty prevalent at the time. I'll be honest, I didn't know how to use those things, but in some way I thought they could help. I later figured it out. But, you know, this is where I think the do-over came, is that I was taking risks with kids on things I didn't have a full, complete understanding about, but I knew they could help. And I just didn't know how they could help students in their learning and in their understanding. And as I learned more and got better, you know, I realized my mistakes back then. And so I think where my associate teachers saw some potential in me is that this guy's going to try some things that might work and might not work. And you right. don't seem to but care. But he's a risk taker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, risk taker, yeah. innovator, right? right? <laughs> it's a huge indicator for sure. Like when you think back, Kyle and, and Robert, uh, some of our past guests are big influencers like yourself. And You know, this is super common that when we talk to these teachers and educators, that common thread of risk taking comes out in some of the biggest impact teachers are having on kids is because they're taking risks. I know that I took a lot of risks early in my career to do a similar approach that you did, Robert, is get technology into the classroom. Kyle did the same thing. That risk taking gets also the word I'm looking for is Oh, I'm I'm blanking on that word, but, uh, you know, you really crave it. You crave that risk-taking because you can learn a lot from that risk-taking, and I think that goes a long way. And it kind of indicates that you're a learner, right? Like, you have to be a lifelong learner if you are acting innovative, if you're trying new things, if you're willing to take those risks. Those are really, really closely aligned with this idea of lifelong learning, and I think as educators, it's so easy for us to get into this particular field and in particular in math and kind of do things the way they've always been done, even though we know that there were kids sitting around us as kids, like when we were in school, that we're not having the same experience that we had. And that right there is kind of a scary piece. I'm wondering while we're talking back about how that impacts students, I wonder if you were to go all the way back to your own experience as a student, as a math student. And when somebody says math class, I know now because we're math educators that we think of all kinds of things when we talk about math. But if you were to think back to your experience as a K to 12 math student, it could be early on, maybe it's later on. What memory pops out from that experience when somebody asks Robert about math class? Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? 
Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. So I would say this, one of the things for me early, early on is, I hate to say this because it contradicts my philosophical thinking about learning, but I'm going to say it anyway. But during that time when I was in third and fourth grade on the old time test, we had to do like a mad minute, I think it was called, Mm -hmm, where you have to do so many problems. And I remember I was always one of the first ones to get done. And I can remember you got so many stars, you got a free ice cream from the cafeteria. And I was always, <laughs> I was always one of those kids who got that. And I benefited from that early on, which then I think, and I'm going to say it this way, gave the perception that I was really good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I was really good more than I was really compliant, but it created other opportunities for me. And I say that because I can remember in fifth and sixth grade, I was able to, and I don't know what it was exactly called, but I remember in fifth grade, I created a, I used, there were these kind of pieces that were sitting around in the classroom. There was a special class and I created a fan, like a personal fan that I could sit on my desk and I was able to create that in the classroom. And I can't recall, it was kind of like batteries and bulbs type of thing, but I created a personal fan that I had on my desk that was blowing at me. And I created this in the classroom (laughs) and I can remember my classmate, my teacher thinking I'm so smart. And I was like, and for me, I was like, I don't know how I did it. I just tried stuff and put stuff together. And lo and behold, this happened. If you take it apart, I don't know if I could put it back together. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Robert. Even even back then, you were the risk taker, you know. And uh, and uh, but not willing to risk taking the fan apart, though. Yeah. That, that would be my. That would be the way I would yeah. go too. I'm like, no, no, we're keeping this together. <laughs> but lo and behold, it happened. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that experience and the kind of praise and pats on the back I got for that and. I can remember my sixth grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Cherry. And I say that because my last name is Barry and I had Miss Cherry as a teacher. Um, She's saying to me, you're going to be an engineer. And that had a profound impact on me thinking I'm going to be an engineer. And I took that all the way through undergrad saying I'm going to be an engineer until I decided I was going to become a teacher. It's interesting how so those powerful like praises and even, you know, I know that you prefaced this story with that goes against some of the beliefs you have now. And, and and this is actually a very similar story to my memory that I've shared here before is that I used to get stickers for taking math and doing math on my own and going above and beyond. And, and those stickers really you should feel ripped off, John. Yeah. He, he was getting ice cream. You only got stickers. <laughs> I know. What's, uh, I had to go to that school. But yeah, like it's, it's uh, sometimes those things give us that courage to go forward and become those risk takers. So I really identify with your story too. And And on this idea of like risk-taking and innovation that you've now clearly demonstrated, I think this goes a long way and you've clearly done this in your career. And this kind of moves us into talking about the book series that you guys at NCTM have been putting together, Catalyzing Change. We'd really like to move the conversation into talking about that, the middle school 
mathematics, the early childhood educator or elementary program of mathematics, Catalyzing Change series. Before we get into talking about where this idea comes from and why you felt like this was a necessary book to put out there, would you give our listeners who have not heard of this a little bit of a background on what is this book series about? Almost like in a little elevator pitch. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, Catalyzing Change is a, actually a three-book series. And the first book in the series, Catalyzing Change in High School Mathematics, Initiating Critical Conversations, came out in April of 2018. And the sole purpose, well, I won't say sole purpose, but the purpose of the series is to get teachers, educators, administrators, parents to have critical conversations on issues that impact the experiences of students in K-12. So in April of this year, uh, Catalyzing Change in Early Childhood Elementary Mathematics and Catalyzing Change in Middle School Mathematics came forward as well, and they were published this year. And so there were kind of four kind of big recommendations. And the first recommendation was kind of the idea to broaden the purpose of mathematics, of learning mathematics. So in the high school book, I think there were three of them. One was to understand and critique the world, experience the joy, wonder, and beauty of mathematics, and expanding professional opportunities. And you can imagine, you know, expanding professional opportunities may not be an appropriate conversation to have in early childhood elementary, but experience joy, wonder, and beauty would be an appropriate conversation. And so in early childhood elementary, it has the experience, joy, wonder, and beauty. It also has this idea of using mathematics to understand and critique the world. And the same with middle school. So that was the idea. What is the purpose of learning mathematics? The second recommendation is about equitable structures. And in high school, much of the conversation is around tracking. We know that tracking perhaps, well, in many places begin in elementary school. And in some places, it may begin as in sooner settings than that. And so this discussion about structures around tracking, around ability grouping, around marginalizing students and sorting students for whatever reason and having conversations around that and what it might mean. I know in the early childhood elementary book, there is this discussion around So what is the purpose of kind of this idea of assessments that happens when students enter pre-K classrooms and what are they being used for? So partly it's not to have a positionality to say not to do these things. The idea is to let's have conversations on why you're doing those things. And if you're doing those things to lessen opportunities for students, have a conversation about that, about those things. The fourth recommendation is about equitable teaching practices, and these are overlapping with the eight effective teaching practices for NCTM in their principles of action. But particularly, it focuses on the idea of mathematical identity and mathematical agency as a part of teaching and learning mathematics. We want all students to see themselves as doers of mathematics, and that has a message across K-12, pre-K-12. Then this idea of agency, so if I see myself as a doer of mathematics, then I will engage in behaviors that doers of mathematics engage. But for the teacher, is how do I create those structures in my classroom so that students can engage in those kinds of things? So what kinds of tasks am I giving students so that students can see themselves as doers of mathematics? What kinds of tasks am I giving students so the students can have a sense of agency? And the 
fourth recommendation is around mathematical understanding, which is around maybe content, essential concepts and central content and the processes and the practices. And so that's kind of, I know you said elevator speech, but that is kind of <laughs> a little bit more than elevator, but there, yeah. You know what, though, but I think that beautifully describes the work. And I love how linking it back to the equitable teaching practices and the eight practices from the Principles to Action book, which has really guided a lot of the work in my district over these past couple of years. We've been on a long journey. And right now we are just diving into those eight practices. And I find that when you do those eight practices or when you at least have that awareness and you're trying to work towards bringing those out in your classroom. And of course, trying to focus on all eight at the same time might be overwhelming for some. So picking one or two that they really want to dive deep in on, what I find is it almost naturally links to some of these other ideas that you're bringing up. This idea of joy, the wonder, the beauty, using math to critique the world. And then something I find really interesting about that is that the last of the recommendations you bring up is this idea of math understanding where the content sort of comes to life. And I think right there, we should all be pausing and thinking about that for a second. And John and I bring it up all the time when we ask teachers in our workshops and we say, what do you want students to remember about your math class five years from now? And teachers hardly ever, I would almost say never have brought up something like quadratic formula or Pythagorean's theorem. They always bring up all of these other ideas that math is exciting, that it's beautiful, that it can help you to look at the world through different perspectives. All of these things come out. Problem solving. Yeah, but yet we hyper focus in on the content. And of course, we could talk about some of the reasons why that may or may not be. But, you know, I find this is really interesting. And you brought out the high school version or the high school edition of this series first. And I'm wondering, would that have been kind of where you wanted to start intentionally because of some of these issues we have in secondary? It seems like in high school, this idea of Equitable structures, to me, seems to be really something that we need to be focusing much more of our attention on. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. So the high school book, I have to acknowledge and give honor to Matt Larson, who was NCTM president before me, because he really got the catalyzing change for high school kind of off the ground. And it was those things that were coming out. I mean, if you can imagine around the discussions around some of the big ideas that are happening in high school mathematics, some of the things that contribute to why students have different differential and experiences in high school mathematics. And Matt really elevated the conversation around those things. And I just benefited from that because I picked up on that conversation and, and we aligned quite nicely in those ideas. And when you think about kind of kids' experiences and, and you think about wonder, joy, and beauty in high school, and particularly in math, do kids leave high school mathematics with that sense? And if not, why not? And so just, let's have those kinds of conversations about that. And then what happened as we begin to have these conversations with the catalyzing change in high school, I'll be honest, there was not a plan initially to do a middle school and an early childhood elementary book. That was not a part of the plan. But as I began to give talks in different places, it became quite apparent that 
people were saying, well, tracking just doesn't start in high school. It starts in these other places. So when are you guys going to have a conversation about that? And so all of these other issues, how what happens in early childhood impacts the trajectory across K-12 as it relates to the kinds of practices that happens in classrooms. And when we think about those eight effective teaching practices, they're not mutually exclusive. You think about, you know, discourse and how discourse has an impact on those who get the speaking math classrooms are often positioned as competent. How do we broaden the space of discourse so all students can have a sense of competence, therefore having a positive impact on their identity? And so it helps us think about some of the practices that happen in the classroom. If you're only using hand raising as an acknowledgement for someone to contribute to the discourse in the mathematics classroom, why? <laughs> Are there other ways that we can engage students? How do we broaden the space of discourse so all students can enter into this space of discourse? And so just raising awareness, having conversation. And then last thing is then how do we then move to actions? And so at the end of each of the three books in the series, the last chapter does focus on actions. And these actions are partitioned by, by folks. So there are actions for administrators, there are actions for paraprofessionals, there are actions for teachers, there are actions for parents. I mean, it is policymakers. And so these actionable things that are related to the recommendations are there as well. Right. This brings up a, a lot of good things. And talking about actions specifically, if I'm going to play the role of a teacher sitting back listening to this podcast right now, and, and they're thinking, this sounds like a, a fabulous book to get my hands on, before I go grab it, what specific actions as a teacher might help me in the realm of the equitable teaching practices on identity and agency? Like what specifically, is it a lesson that you could go over or a couple tips that you could give the teachers to say like, this is the issue we're trying to address and here's how you can do it in your classroom so that a teacher listening right now can go, hey, I can put this into action right now and then I can go grab the book and learn more. So, I mean, there are a couple of things that come to my mind. So when I think about teachers kind of broadly, so in what ways in our practices do we connect the mathematics to students' interests, the experiences, the kind of resources that they bring with them to our classroom, whether it's, you know, kind of linguistic, cultural, community resources? How do we connect what we're doing in our math classroom that connect to those things? When I think about young kids, what role does play have in my mathematics classroom? And play, because you think about young kids, they come to schools with a sense of curiosity. And that sense of curiosity, how do we take advantage of that in our classroom? And how is that sense of curiosity connected to the joy, wonder, and beauty of mathematics? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they're highly connected. And I think we have to take advantage of those things that, I mean, think about young kids. They ask, well, why does this happen? And what if I did this? And how about if I did that? I mean, why not encourage that kind of sense of curiosity and build on that sense of curiosity in, in our teaching practices? And I think that leads to kind of discourse and, and they, when they ask those why and how types of questions and how do we connect students to one another? And so that leads to practices in classroom. What are we doing in our classroom that connects students to each other? Too often discourse is a teacher to student or a student to teacher thing. But how do we connect students to one another and the kinds of opportunities that we create in our classrooms? 
And I can imagine, you know, for me, it is connected to the kinds of tasks we do. It is connected to discourse. It is connected to posing purposeful questions, all of those things. And we can be explicit in the way that we do that. But I think if we think of high level, I do think of when we think about children, I think of children as resources. I need to know my children well enough in my classroom, whether they're early childhood or high school students. And I I would say young students uh, or my students in high school. I need to know them well enough to know what kinds of resources are they bringing to my classroom so I connect those resources to my mathematics teaching. If I don't know them well enough to do that, I need to figure out how to do that. And Robert, I think that's such a great place to start because as I go and I reflect on the four recommendations and some of the pieces that you broke down for us earlier in the episode, I look at it and I think starting with curiosity, because we are like humans are curious. And John and I talk about this all the time, our three-part framework. We're always talking about how sparking curiosity is something that we like starting with, because If we can't spark that curiosity in students by figuring out how can I get someone to lean in on this idea, it's really difficult to address some of those other pieces. So, for example, to actually help students to understand how to use math to critique the world around them and to start thinking about broadening the purpose of mathematics, I think we have to start with what we're naturally curious about and really build from there. So I feel like that's a great place for all educators to think about, because if I'm hyper-focused on math understanding and content in particular, then maybe what I have to do is go, okay, if that's where I want to get to, now how do I get to the front of the line here and how do I figure out how to get a student to kind of look my way when I want to introduce this idea? So how do I ask more questions instead of giving more advice up front? How do we make this less about saying, okay, today's lesson's about adding fractions and I'm going to show you how and really just presenting an interesting scenario for students to think about? I think that's a great place for all educators to be thinking about. And even if we focused on one part of every single lesson on how do we spark that curiosity, I think we're going to start heading in the direction where we can start really putting some of those other pieces into place through catalyzing change as well. What do you think about that? And so when we spark that curiosity, it's amazing how, in my experience, how kids ask those questions. And they may work on a task and have a sense of curiosity. What if we tried different numbers? Would it work all the time? I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> I mean, that beats a worksheet every time. I don't care who said it. It just does. I mean... I don't you know, know is my favorite phrase now <laughs> in yeah. teaching. You know, and yeah. it used to always, I would just give them the answer early on. And now it's <laughs> right. like, I don't know. Or I just say, interesting. That's right. kind of the other go-to is, like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. I wonder. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. You know? the, the curiosity, that sense of wonder comes, meets itself in very interesting ways. And then, in my experience, when students have that sense of curiosity, they share their curiousness with one another. And then you can see kids kind of rallying around each other. Well, you didn't try this. Well, let's try it. (laughs) Or what if you did this? What if we turn it around like this? There's a lot of things that happen, I think, that we have to consider and think about. It's clear now, for sure, right now, the way you just spoke about that, why high school made so much sense to bring this book out first. Also, just seeing all the high school teachers on, they're all reflecting now on how hard it is to spark curiosity with students, whereas younger students are pretty, like you suggested, they come in with so much curiosity, they're just soaking it all up. 
And that's for some reason, you know, that that fades and we want to prevent that. But bringing it back into high school is one of obviously your missions and one of our missions, missions of many teachers from around our part and your part. Now, I'm wondering, Robert, what's next on your plate? Like, I know that you've done so much lately. You were gracious enough and kind enough and generous enough to put together a session in our virtual summit last November on changing the narrative, uh, Black Kids Do Math. That was a well-received session in our summit. So I wanted to thank you for that. And listeners who are part of our academy can still go and, and watch that session. So that's there. I'm holding a book in my hands right now that's called High School Mathematics Lessons to Explore, Understand, and Respond to Social Injustice. It looks like you and a whole bunch of other educators collaborated on that book. What else is in your world? What else do you have coming up and you're working on? Yeah, I mean, so the work that we did around that book for high school on social injustice I'm also working on another book that focuses on access, equity, and empowerment. In that book, we are trying to be intentional to link teaching practice because people often ask, so what does equity actually look like as a practice, so to speak? And we're working really hard trying to be as overt as possible. Too often, we might hear things come around culturally relevant and culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy. And I think For many educators, there's a lot of buy-in around the theoretical lens around those ideas. But what does it actually look like as a math teaching practice? And so we're working on that. So that's the next kind of piece of project that I've been working on is to be as overt about what it might look like and what it could look like. And there are other people who have done this work. And many who have done it probably may have done it and probably will do it better than I. But I do think that we need some guidance in the field around how are we overtly connecting teaching practices to this kind of theoretical thinking around culturally relevant and culturally responsive. And my hope is just, you know, to provide some framing and then hopefully we can catalyze some things around that. I don't know why you catalyze, but I guess <laughs> but, um, I like it. But, yeah, so right now is a book. You know, we're working on a book for that. So that's in my math ed wheelhouse, so to speak. And quite honestly, I've been away from my university for two years. I haven't taught a course in two years. And teaching is one of the things I take a lot of pride in. I want to teach again. <laughs> so I look forward to teaching a course. And in fact, what this time has allowed me to do is to not go back to doing the things I've done previously in my courses. I've learned a lot being NCTM president and traveling a lot. And I want to be able to go back and have my students to have the benefit of the kinds of experiences I've had and the kind of people I've met connected to. So my classroom will no longer be just my classroom. I want to open that space to as many people to kind of be a part of the courses I teach when I come back. So I will be teaching a math methods course at my university, not this fall, but next spring. And so, yeah, it would be by next spring, it would be two and a half years since I last taught a course. And so I look forward to getting back to teach. Yeah, you said you have the itch, right? You're out for a little while and you just want to get back in there. And I think that's fantastic that you're going to be able to bring in all of those experiences to come back. And when you're traveling around and seeing different conferences and meeting different people and having different perspectives, it's something that's so great to share. So I'm sure that uh, the students who get 
get to have the privilege of joining you in your class in the spring. I'm sure they're going to love it. Before we wrap up here, Robert, we can't thank you enough for taking the time. We know how busy you are. Hopefully things are a little calmer now, now that you've been able to hang up the NCTM hat for a little while. But where can people find more about Robert and some of the other things you've done? We will include all the links that we've discussed today. But if people want to uh, take a deeper dive, where can they find more about Robert? I'm still on the NCTM Board of Directors, so you still be able to find me on NCTM's website. But also you can find, I mean, on my faculty page at the University of Virginia, University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. And you can also find me on Twitter. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I have ebbs and flows. Some weeks I'm overly active and some weeks I'm not as active, but I try to remain have a presence on Twitter as well. So yeah, so I would say, yeah, Twitter. And then my faculty page and NCTM. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. And I think on Twitter, you are Robert Q. Berry. So that's easy enough for people to find. And uh, we will make sure to link up all those links. So the board of directors page, your University of Virginia page, as well as your Twitter profile. We can't thank you enough on behalf of the Math Moment Maker community and the NCTM community for all of your hard work and your continued work on the board of directors. So we want to thank you again for the time and we hope that we'll be able to bump into you again at a live conference sometime soon, hopefully once these conferences get going again. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. We want to thank Robert again for spending some time with us to share his ideas and insights with us and with you, the Math Moment Maker community. Before we go, that 2020 Make Math Moments Virtual Summit is happening on November 7th and 8th. Take a moment to get yourself registered and you'll get the details sent right to your email as they become available. Register for this year's summit at makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. Awesome. They will get it right to their email, like John said, at makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by pausing now and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, tweeting us at Make Math Moments on social media, or joining our Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 86. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 86. Well, until next time, John, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work working with teachers who do not 
want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.